Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us now as we continue to look to your word and uh, look now at the work of missions. We pray, Lord, you would help us to understand it better so that we might take our proper part in it. We ask, Lord, for that understanding in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Whether you're speaking of international missions, sometimes called foreign missions, uh, or you're talking about home missions, that's the work of a church planner to begin a new work somewhere in his native land, or personal missions, your own efforts to share the gospel with others. There's often much more to it than what I think comes to mind at first thought. And that applies to both what it means to be a missionary and what it means to support missionary work. As we begin looking at all that we do through the lens of First John chapter 3 and verse 18, my little children, let us love not in love, not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We're challenged to, I think, prayerfully consider how we respond to the call of Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples with a love that is not content with mere lip service, but really engages in deeds and in truth with the work itself. For example, is it sufficient to offer an occasional prayer and write a check from time to time? Is that sufficient? Does that adequately fulfill our duty? And does it express to our missionaries and to those who serve that we care for them? And does it really constitute the character of loving in deed and in truth, which Jesus says those who love him will exercise in the world? Does it rise? Does that occasional prayer and that check from time to time, does that rise to the level of commitment that Christ sets before us here? When we look at the nature of the missionary service undertaken by Paul and Barnabas, we see that that missionary service had several elements. First, there was universality to it. Um, we find that the first formal mission work in the New Testament really begins with a realization that the gospel is intended for the people of all nations. That God has his elect in every place. If you turn over to Acts chapter 11, you'll see there that when Peter returns to Jerusalem after preaching the gospel to the Roman centurion Cornelius and to his family and to his friends, he's challenged by certain ones of the circumcision in Jerusalem for working with Gentiles, or that is, the people of other nations. They actually grill Paul and, and, and call him for examination and, and trial, or excuse me, Peter, examination and trial for having done this. In Acts chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles, or the nations, people of other nations other than Israel, had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. And Peter's explanation, the explanation that he gives of the events, as that's understood by everybody, they all come to the same conclusion at the end. And that conclusion is in verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles, to people of other nations other than Israel, repentance to life. Now that seems to us so obvious. And it should have been no surprise, given the Great Commission that uh, Mr. Brillhart quoted a few moments ago. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. But I think we need to pause and understand just how revolutionary this was to the mindset of the times. In that day, much of the thinking about uh, these things was an error. It was thinking that ignored the word of God. And uh, even though this point about the gospel being for all nations was clearly set forth throughout the Old Testament, it wasn't understood or known. But the events that Peter experienced surrounding the summons of God for him to go to Caesarea Philippi and preach to this uh, Roman centurion made it undeniably clear. And it's understanding, it is understanding that and believing this truth that God has elect among every tongue and tribe and nation. That's what's driven missionary work. And it's still fueling missionary endeavors today. It's this biblical truth that has moved missionaries to go everywhere and anywhere, even the most obscure places in the world, even among the most hard-hearted and blind peoples, even into the most repressive and hostile nations. It is this reality that God has his elect in every nation that drove Dr. Hosman to seek for God's chosen children among the people on the Arabian Peninsula. Why would you go there to look for the elect? There's only one reason, because God says that he has his people in every, among every tribe, people, and nation. We as Christians don't go out believing that we can convince anyone of anything. But we do go out believing that Christ can call anyone he chooses to himself. No matter, and, and, and no matter when or where. And we go out with his message, which is encapsulated in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 through 23. God says, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. That's the message of the Lord. Look to me, all the nations of the world. Look to me for salvation. And we lift him up, believing that he will draw 
excuse me, men, women, and children to himself at will, out of every tongue, out of every nation, out of every culture. We believe that, and that's why we go out as we do as missionaries, both personally and formally. Then there's variety exhibited here. The second thing to notice is that the Lord has more than one way of employing men and women in this work. You know, the first actual missionary work that was done by men other than the apostles was the result of persecution. It wasn't people gathering together and uh, committing to send out a missionary into the world. It was the result of persecution. If you look at Acts 11, you'll see this beginning in verse 19, where we read that after the persecution that took place in Jerusalem, there were those who were scattered after the persecution that arose after Stephen traveled, arose over Stephen and traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So that's how it begins. This persecution of Stephen drives people out of Jerusalem and they end up going to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch and they're preaching the word of God. They're doing it to only Jews at this point, but they're still going out and preaching the word. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here you have this great church being established in Antioch. Why is it there? It's there because of the persecution in Jerusalem, which drove the gospel out of that city and out beyond. And then it goes to Cyprus, and then from Cyprus it comes back to Antioch. And from Antioch, the missionaries are sent forth because they're born out of a mission work created by persecution. Now, others like Paul and Barnabas, they're formally appointed and they're sent out. In fact, Barnabas' first task is to investigate this work that's going on in Antioch. He's sent by the people in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, up to Antioch to find out what in the world is going on there, and then to find this Saul of Tarsus. He and Paul then returned to Antioch, where they spend a year. The scripture telling us through Luke that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians there in Antioch. So Barnabas goes, he investigates this this new work in Antioch. He sees how God is working and the spirit of God is working. He then goes to look for Paul. He finds Paul. The two of them come back to Antioch. And they encourage and strengthen this new work there by teaching them the word of God. And we cite all this just to show that the Lord has many ways of doing his work and different ways of enlisting workers. Sometimes it's by a formal call. Sometimes it's by unexpected circumstances. But if you and I are looking at the world with a missionary spirit, we're looking for that. How am I going to be moved? How am I going to be thrust? How am I going to be influenced? What doors are going to be open for me so that I can bear witness for
for Christ. And for the believer, that's the way his or her life ought to be oriented. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this when he says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We do what God has called us to do, and then the Lord brings forth the increase. The third thing we see, the third quality, is compassion. So there's universality. We're, we're called to every tongue, people of every nation, every language. Uh, then there's the, the call uh, to come and, and to go out and bear precious seed. And to do that, however, we're called to by various means from the Lord. And then we're called to have compassion. The work involves showing the love of Christ, both spiritually and tangibly. The first joint mission that Saul and Barnabas undertook after settling in Antioch is to bring relief funds to the churches in Jerusalem. Considering the famine that strikes the area during the reign of the emperor Claudius. So in Acts chapter 11, again, verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, this is the disciples in Antioch, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This isn't the last time Paul will carry funds between fledgling and established churches during different times. When Dr. Hosman, whose life he reviewed in Sunday school, was was first moved to go to Arabia, it was because the speaker, a missionary doctor himself, was convinced that a female doctor bringing physical help to the women of the peninsula was the best way to make inroads among them with the gospel. This was the way to break in. This was the way to to find a way in. The tangible help, the loving deed being used by God to pry open the hearts. But as Mr. Brillhart mentioned, you have to have those things in their right order. The main thrust is to get the gospel there. She went there to bring the gospel, not to deliver babies. But she went to deliver babies so she could bring the gospel. And you remember, if you were in Sunday school, that she made that a requirement to her coming. She actually wrote the king of the district she was in and said, I'll I'll come with one provision, that I am able to bring the gospel to those I minister to first. And he gave his agreement to that, and you would think that that would have shut the deal. But it wasn't. It opened the door. In James chapter 2, and verse 14, we read, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone say he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Well, that's in no way a suggestion that we're justified by works. Let me just put that argument aside. But it does demonstrate that those who are justified are compassionate and ready to show mercy in the name of Christ to those who are in need. By these early efforts, you can say that the course of international missions was being set from the very beginning. Then you have recruitment. If you look in Acts 12, 
You have the persecution and release of Peter by the hand of God and the shocking death of Herod. And after these things were told, Saul and Barnabas, after raising a third recruit, John Mark, returned to Antioch. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Barnabas, by going and seeking Paul, and then bringing on board John Mark, shows us the need and missions for partners in the work. Missionaries are always looking for partners. That is, others to join them in their labors. As a child, growing up in the church, I was challenged constantly by international missionaries, both formally and personally, to prayerfully consider if I might be willing to join some missionary endeavor. It wasn't something just occasionally set before me. It was set before me regularly. Dr. Hosman had two nurses who worked with her and continued the work after she was called home. I knew one of those women, and I knew both of them, really, but one more particularly. And they were part of a stream of missionaries that visited my church and my home, and they were always looking for partners in the work. In many respects, the work of missions has changed dramatically from those days when Dr. Hosman and Edna Barter were there. But the need and the opportunities haven't. And I hope that you young people and you children, as Dr. Brillhart said, will seriously consider and prayerfully ask the Lord if this is for you. Can you imagine what it would mean to someone like Teeny Lero if after she gave her report, a young person came up to her and said, I want to go with you. I need to go with you. I need to have a part in that work. And I hope your parents are praying about it for your children. You know, as a father of two international missionaries, I know how difficult that can be. I've told you the story before when Miriam first came to me and said, Dad, I want to go to China. Well, first she said, I want to be a missionary. And I was all, oh, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. And then she said, I want to go to China. And I thought, what's wrong with Mexico? Why do you want to go to China? But the Lord pressed on my heart from the very beginning. She is as safe in China as she is here with you because she's with me. And it's where I want her to be. Such a blessing to see your children go out weeping and bearing precious seed, expecting that in every place God has his elect. Those of you who were in Sunday school remember Sarah Hosman's family were very disappointed with her because she didn't stay home and make money. They couldn't understand why she wanted to go to the mission field until their own hearts were changed by Christ and then they understood everything. I don't think that the idea of carrying the gospel to others is a priority like it ought to be. Missionary partners often refer to themselves as teams, and it's appropriate that they do so, because teamwork is often required. And it's a real blessing to have someone to share the work with. 
In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, we read about Jesus appointing those who went out as missionaries under him. After these things, the Lord, Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray, the Lord of harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. That's after calling these 70 and separating them out two by two to do the work in teamwork. He says, pray for more laborers to go out two by two to do this work. Then there's discipleship which also Mr. Brillhart referred to. With these pieces in place, men for the first time are then formally set apart for missionary work. And he's brought that part of the, the story before you this morning. Ordained to that work, Paul and Barnabas go immediately in the pursuit of disciples. Chapter 13 of Acts again, beginning with verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And we can trace the course of this discipleship by reading down further in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them. The next Sabbath, that is, the people of other nations. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the nations, to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The work of missions, beloved is not to create a dependent class, but to plant churches made up, made up of believers who will grow and mature in the faith. A disciple of Jesus Christ is mandated by him to go and make disciples. That is, to multiply him or herself by working for Christ and thereby edifying and encouraging and, and, and helping to establish others in the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, there was also an element of opposition and danger. Paul and Barnabas are hardly started before they run into opposition. They come to Paphos and find a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with the proconsul there, Sergius Paulus, who has a, had a sincere interest in hearing the word of God. But again, in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 6, we read about this certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. And he immediately interferes with the work of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, immediately opposes it. Missionary work, beloved, whether it's international or whether it's home missions or personal missions, is liable to be met with stiff opposition from the enemy. Attacks launched by him and those who serve him. They've been known to stifle personal evangelism undermine and crush home mission efforts. 
and intimidate and discourage international missionaries. It would be unrealistic to ignore the fact that some mission work can be, from an earthly perspective, dangerous. But every believer knows that his or her safety rests in obedience to the Lord and not circumstances. And people would ask me, aren't you concerned about your daughter? My answer was always the same. She's as safe in the hands of the Lord as she there as she is here. It's his protection. She needs to be where he wants her to be. In Matthew 28, 19, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. But listen to how it ends. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's where the protection is. And then lastly, there's the reward. The reward of missionary work. We had the privilege of having a couple in the BP church in Knoxville with two of their grown children who had been missionaries in Ecuador and worked with Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. If you're unfamiliar with the story of these missionaries, watch the film The Edge of the Spear or read the book Through Gates of Splendor and you'll, you'll know this their story. You'll find that what these folks were engaged in was first inspired by their confidence that God has his elect everywhere. That's why they went there. Secondly, that they considered it their call and duty to bring the love of Christ to those isolated souls. And thirdly, that their own lives found their true fullness in serving Christ and his kingdom. Now, the cost of bringing the gospel to those lost souls in Ecuador was high. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint both were murdered by those natives. But when you see the work of the gospel flourishing and growing in the hearts of those men and women, some of whom murdered those men, those men who came to befriend them in Christ, it shows what can happen when Christians determined by the grace of God to love, not just in word and tongue, but in deeds and truth, go forth bearing the gospel. Was the work difficult? Yes. Was it very difficult? Did it require sacrifice? Yes. In this case, the most costly sacrifice of all their lives. Well, was it worth it? Well, I can tell you that watching the believers from that tribe bear witness for Christ and his grace answers the question in a way that both breaks and rejoices the heart. You can't, as a Christian, familiarize yourself with this story and not come away saying, yes, it was a sacrifice well spent. But it goes beyond that, even in the heart of the believer, making there a sacrifice that brings forth an intangible reward that is precious. 
This is Elizabeth Elliot. The profound and simple truth that God is God is the thing that was brought to my mind. When my husband Jim died, the Spirit of God brought to my mind the words, I am the Lord. Things which sound like platitudes become vital, living, and powerful when you have to learn them in the bottom of the barrel in dark tunnels. The lesson, I am the Lord, ought to be one that we learn without going through deep waters. But apparently, there isn't any other way. She thanked God for the lesson she learned through the death of her husband. So I just have three questions for you as we close this morning. First of all, what does it look like when you as a personal missionary go out with the intention of loving others in Christ's name, in deeds and in truth, confident that the Lord has his elect everywhere? What does it look like when you do that? When you do your missionary work, what does it look like when, when you go out? Because you know that there are some of God's elect in every place and everywhere you go. What does it look like when you go out loving others in Christ's name, in deeds and in truth? Secondly, what does it look like for an international or home missionary to have your support? What does that look like? If you're the missionary looking and saying, I have the support of X, this person, what does that look like? Does that mean they see you once every couple of years when they make a report and every once in a while they get a check that maybe you had something to do with? And is that the story of your support? Is that what they see is your support of them on the field and in their work? What does it look like? Every time you get a missionary letter from PMU, it tells you how to make contact with that missionary you contact them and tell them you're praying for them and ask them what they need and if there's anything you can do for them and how you might help them? Or is that not a part of what it means to have your support as a missionary? It's an important question, beloved, because we're talking about loving others in deeds and in truth, not just in word and in tongue. And thirdly, Have you thought of teaming up and going out with others to some part of the world to serve? Have you thought about it? Have you prayed about it? Mr. Brillhart pointed out how much prayer and attention was given to this calling. And uh, I like the way he he made that distinction between those who say, oh, we're going on a mission trip, and it's just uh, no, hardly any prayer put into it, hardly any conviction about it, just it's an opportunity to go take a trip. Instead of, this is something we prayerfully need to approach as a call from God to go out and to serve our Savior. Now, not everybody can go. Not everyone is called uh, to go around the world. I realized that, and obviously I wasn't called, despite the fact that missionaries were constantly trying to get me to feel that call. But the old hymn, 
here am I, send me, has a beautiful tone to it, doesn't it? You sang it all together a little while ago. If you cannot cross the ocean and the lands of the lost explore, you can find the lost nearer. You can help them at your door. If you cannot give your thousands, you can give the widow's might. And the least you do for Jesus will be precious in his sight. If you cannot speak like angels, if you cannot preach like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus. You can say he died for all. If you cannot rouse the wicked with the judgment's dread alarms, you can lead the little children to the Savior's waiting arms. If you cannot be the watchman standing high on Zion's wall, pointing out the path of heaven, offering life and peace to all, with your prayers and with your bounties, you can do what heaven demands. You can be like faithful Aaron, holding up the prophet's hands. If among the older people you may not be apt to teach, feed my lambs, said Christ our shepherd, place the food within their reach. And it may be that the children you have led with trembling hand will be found among your jewels when you reach the better land. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we would thank you, first of all, humbly for those who are even now in the field serving. We thank you, Lord, for the work that's going on in Myanmar under the work of, of Reverend Kimma. This is a difficult time for that nation. And, Lord, they're under oppression. And we pray that you would protect our servant there, your servant there, and the work that goes on there. We thank you, Lord, for the work that's going on in Cambodia that uh, Mark Baldwin began and now, Lord, continues. And we ask you to bless those who are serving there now. We thank you, Lord, for the work going on in Greece. And we pray that you would be with the Kirklands as they serve in the international church there and as they lead that body and as they work with the, the women who have been trafficked and, and are, Lord, so much in need of care and love and protection. We pray, Father, that you would be with those folks in Kenya who suffer so much so often, who are repressed by enemies and, Lord, struggle under natural uh, disasters. Father, we ask you to be with the work going on in Brazil. And we pray that you would not only bless Judith there in Kenya, but the Lehmans in Brazil as they undertake this large work for the strengthening and encouraging of the Church of Christ there. Lord, we ask you to be with our brother Weber in Ohio as he seeks to plant a church there and to establish a, a preaching point for the glory of Christ. Be with our brother Frank Liu in Minnesota, there in St. Paul. Bless him, Lord, and his, his efforts there. Be with Brother Baldwin down in California, and, and Lord, encourage him in his work. And Father, be with Pastor Young here in Washington. Encourage him in his labors for the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for the prospects of a new work under Pastor uh, Fernandez in Idaho. We ask you, Lord, to establish that work and let it go forward. Father, we pray that you would have your hand on these servants, both home and farm workers. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us. 
Make us, Lord, determined personal missionaries, remembering our mandate and going forth weeping and bearing precious seed. Make us, Lord, a faithful witness for you, as well as supporters of those who do the work abroad. Father, may you be glorified, and may the gospel go forth with power. And Lord, may the kingdom be extended by your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.